If you summed up the life of today's guest, it would be one of selfless service. We chat about his military career, the Cafe Chain 214, and his new recruitment company of the same 214 name, which specializes in placing military veterans into careers post-service. In addition to this, he plans to create a one-stop shop for ex-personnel offering everything from financial services and legal advice to employment resources. Episode 23, Michael Oregon. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. Well, congratulations on launching the uh, recruitment company, 214. Thank you very much. So have you actually formally launched now? I know you did a soft launch previously are you formally launched now no so we soft launch on christmas eve um mm-hmm. and that was more just to maintain the momentum we had through the 214 brand coming up into christmas um mm-hmm. and the the public launch was supposed to be the end of february but i think we're going to push it back a little bit further to probably mid-march okay mm. and we should mention that the recruitment company focuses on uh, placing veterans into employment you had the 214 cafes. What made you go from cafes to recruitment? Um, I guess it's the same reason that we um, went with 214 being a veteran-based coffee brand. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not so much that it's a niche area, but um, that certainly there's a gap um, where veterans require a little bit of extra help at the moment. Um, so I think uh, it, it came from the Breton report a little bit and the bad publicity that um, veterans were getting. And I was talking to a couple of mates that were having trouble getting jobs. Um, and it, it essentially just launched from there. So it, it worked both ways. So guys, a couple of guys that were having trouble uh, getting jobs, but also a veteran mate of mine who owned a business that asked me if I had any veterans that I knew uh, that I could employ. And it sort of just all came from there. Because you don't have a recruitment background at all, do you? I have a defence recruitment background. I was in defence okay. defense recruiting for a, a number of years there. I worked on the uh, women and army team when that first kicked off. Uh-huh. Um, but, no, I, I don't have a civilian recruitment background, no. Okay. you Because the 214 brand actually came from a regiment that was called 214. Yes. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So. Um, it's actually my ex-partner, who is my best friend now and, and the co-founder. Um, it was her idea to name the first cafe after the regiment and, and actually um, it was her her decision really to uh, make it about veterans. Um, so we named it after my first unit, so kind of based around where it all began. So, um, you know, 2nd, 14th Light Horse Regiment or the nickname for it is 214 is, is formally where the, the name came from, yeah. So let's go back to the start and talk about your entry into the military career. How old were you when you joined the Army? Um, I joined in 2006, so I was around mm-hmm. about 19 at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm. So post-September 11, so you knew what you were getting into? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And why well, the Army? Um, it's a good question. It was never really something that was spoken of in my family too much. So my oldest brother, he joined the Air Force um, well, fairly soon after 9-11, actually. 
Um, and it was then that the spotlight sort of went on to the military and I considered it as a potential career option. Uh, but I was attempting to play rugby league at the time and I got a bad injury uh, and so I put that on hold. And in reality, there's no real reason why um, Army was then my chosen field. It just seemed like the right thing to do at the time. Um, and certainly now I can say uh, that I have no regrets for doing it. So walk me through your military career. You joined up at 19. Mm-hmm. Did did you always want to be general army or did you sort of have a goal of being in a particular area of the armed forces? Um, no, I, I didn't. I didn't. I mean, when I first started researching the army, I, I had a pretty good idea that I wanted to be in a, a combat type role, mm-hmm. uh, whether that was cavalry or infantry. I hadn't really made up my mind at that stage. Um, and so I went through the Royal Military College and thought that I might um, end up in aviation and did all the helicopter testing, passed with no problems, but then decided that it wasn't really the direction I wanted to go. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's when I had a career advisor there who I wouldn't say convinced me that Armoured Corps was the way to go, but certainly suggested to me that it's uh, it's better to be driving around than walking around. <laughs> A little bit more protection. Well, not so much protection. It's just a lot easier to drive than it is to walk. <laughs> <laughs> I never could. It's particularly because of all the weight you'd be carrying when you. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, you, sorry, hang on. You started in that role and then you, what was sort of the career progression from there, yeah, being 19? So, so I graduated in at the end of 2007 and uh, went down to Pakapanyal. Yep. Um, and did my 12 months of or six months of um, ROBC, which is the Regimental Officer Basic Course, which is the specific training to be cavalry. Uh, went back up to second uh, 14th and started my career as a troop leader there. Uh, spent 12 months at the regiment and then deployed on Mentoring Task Force 1 to Afghanistan in 2010 with 6RR. Um was there for 264 days, not that I was counting, and um, <laughs> came back, went on leave, went down to Kapuka to the Army Recruit Training Centre, uh, spent a bit of time down there and decided that I was, um, my interest laid in the Special Forces, and that was based on a boss that I'd had. Mm-hmm. Um, trained up, trained up, trained up, uh, broke my wrist a few days before selection. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, as you do. Um, realised I didn't really have the commitment to have another crack at it. I mean, you've got to be 100% committed to be able to do something like that and it just wasn't there for me. So I posted back to 2nd 14th um, after Kapuka in 2012 um, and I, I was a, a little bit disgruntled, I must say. I was um, in a position that I wasn't really enjoying, especially after I had my mind focused on the fact that I was going to be going to Special Forces. Mm. Um, and... Ended up taking leave without pay to go and work in the mining world with my old boss. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was so. It was from there that I moved into the reserves and actually started in um, defence recruiting. So you mentioned on a previous conversation with me that you actually served with Daniel Kieran, who I had also had on the podcast and discussed his wonderful story. But you said that you served with him. When did you where did you serve with him? Yeah. Could your stories right. parallel a little bit as well? Yeah, yeah. So so the um in Afghanistan in twenty ten on um mentoring task force one. So I didn't um I wasn't serving side by side with him, but we were we were together in Afghanistan at the same time. Yeah. Okay. So being um in the military, 
you would have been trained in warfare and trained to go over and fight. What was the reality of it though? You would have had an expectation. What was the reality when you went over there versus that expectation? Um, you know, I haven't been asked a question like that before, certainly not worded that way. I guess um, I was trying to look at it in in the way a lot of young men look at it, I think, and that is that our intention of joining the military is to help people, yeah. um, not necessarily to go to war or inflict violence or anything like that, but more so to, to aid people when it came down to it, and certainly that was my goal. When mm-hmm. we got over there, we, um, you know, we were faced with a country of extremes, I suppose you could say, where, uh, you know, the people were very extreme, the terrain was very extreme, the weather was very extreme, you know, it was definitely um, a, an absolute country of extremes. And we, we got faced with a group of people who some wanted help and some didn't want help. And uh, it really came down to um, doing what you could to help who you could and at times that was just to help yourself or help your mates um, as opposed to helping any of the you know the people that were there Um, and realistically you just kind of did what you could so having the expectation to help people I didn't really get to do exactly what I wanted to Mm. Um, but but in reality you know you sort of just ended up doing what you could. Was it hard being over there and and you mentioned that part of the population wanted help and part of the population didn't. Was it hard going out? Were you going out on foot patrols as well um, or were you just in the vehicles? Yeah, so we, we did do a lot of foot patrols as well um, and, you know, meeting with the local populace and things like that, We're for the most part in vehicles. Um, but to get anywhere in a vehicle, it's quite dangerous with the IED threat over there. So, mm. um, you know, for the most part... Um, there were guys walking out the front clearing them for any IEDs, so the combat engineers doing that sort of stuff. Um, was, sorry. was it hard being in that amongst that local populace knowing some of them didn't want you there? Yeah, I mean, it, it got to a point where it, it was pretty difficult to trust anyone over there and, and I suppose um, after a while you start thinking the worst that, um, you know, before before you can create any trust, you've got to get past the fact that not everybody over there was had bad intentions, even though it was mm. pretty easy to think that way. When I was having a chat to Daniel, he talked about the first time he was, well, he engaged the enemy. Do you remember the first time you got shot at? I do. Talk me through that. Um, okay, so I guess the first time we got shot at was just a random round over the head, um, which kind of gave you that little jolt in your system that you were actually in a war zone. Uh, but it mm. was miles it was miles away from us, you know. It wasn't wasn't something that was even really aimed at us. But I think the first um, the first time we got shot at was in what we'd probably consider an ambush type setup. It was about one o'clock in the morning. Uh, we we were on a foot patrol. So funnily enough as a cavalryman, my very first um, time I got shot at was on foot, which is not something you train for specifically. Mm. Um, but we, we were out in the middle of Chora Valley uh, about 1 o'clock in the morning. Um, it was an Australian-only patrol to just sort of get the lay of the land a little bit at night time. Um, we didn't think that there was too high a threat level at that stage. We, uh, we moved across a, um, an orchid field or a field of orchids and, um, you know, we were quite exposed on our right flank, which is where we got engaged from. Um, and to be honest, the the first 
sound of machine gun uh, that I instantly thought that someone had just made a mistake, one of our guys, and that he just pulled the trigger, uh, you know, and he'd negligently discharged. So that, that was my first thought, not, oh, shit, we've been attacked, but uh, actually that someone had made a mistake. Um, so we got engaged from our right-hand side um, from what I could see was about three different firing positions with various uh, different weaponry. Um one of the infantry guys, so to be honest, at that stage I hadn't quite worked out where it was coming from. Uh, one of the guys on patrol gave a fire order out to the right and um, that sort of allowed us to engage back at them and, and work out where they were. And we got stuck in the location for around about five minutes, um, shooting going back and forward a little bit. Um, still not really, there was a lot of confusion. No one really knew where it was coming from exactly. Um, and no one really knew who we were fighting against either. We knew that there was Afghan police in the area, so there was a little bit of thought that maybe we were, you know, blue on green. Um, we also knew there was a lot of militia in the area, so we were quite worried that we might have militia mistakenly come up behind us and start engaging us as well. Um, yeah, and because we didn't really know the land too well at that stage and because and there was all of that confusion, um, it, it's... It certainly created um, well, some initial chaos uh, for people who were quite inexperienced. So when, at what point did you sort of figure out that you know, the direction that you were getting engaged from and, and who was engaging you? Yeah, so we didn't ever find out who was engaging us. Um, ah. So, yeah, so we, we were being attacked for um, oh, around about five minutes initially where we were shooting back and forth at each other. Um, we moved into position to, to secure. So we, uh, you know, instinctually you do what you've been trained and we managed to move into a, um, an aqueduct-type system that acted like a, uh, a trench, I suppose, and we had a, uh, a wall to our front that we had a section of infantry move up and create like an L shape um, so that we had protection across the board. Uh, but because it was dark time and the enemy had chosen the, this location to attack them, it was smarter for us to um, basically to withdraw and, um, you know, instead of getting engaged by who basically could have been anyone at that stage, we didn't know how many there were. Uh, we didn't know if they were police who were mistakenly attacking us. We didn't know if it was militia. We didn't know any of these things. So um, it's better. It was better for us to withdraw and um, you know fight another day. When you went back to the to the compound or fob or whatever that you went mm-hmm. back to, what was your thoughts? Like, what are those discussions after that first contact? You've survived. <laughs> you've got out of there. Yeah, I guess adrenaline is the first thing you, you think of when you get back there and, you know, you dump that adrenaline and you're suddenly very tired. Uh, but the discussions were fairly excited, I suppose. I think um, there was a mixture of shock and excitement. No no one had really expected to get hit that early or at that stage. Um, so, you know, you, you've got the bravado from some of the guys. You've got a bit of fear from some of them as well that realise, oh, you know, oh, shit, we're actually in a war zone. Um, yeah, the discussions were varied. It's hard to say. Um, and to be honest, I, I had to move quite quickly away from it as um, there was a infantry lieutenant in charge of the patrol, but I, I had to go down with him to, to do the reporting. So um, I can't really comment too much on what the conversations were, but definitely it was a, a varied response, that's for sure. How was your response to it? Um. You know, it's it's funny. I've been asked that a few times, and 
Um, you'd think that by now I'd be able to give you a, an answer, a truthful answer, but in reality, I don't really remember. Um, yeah. And and I say that not that I don't remember the the situation. I remember that fine. Is I just don't really re- remember the response that I had to it. I, as I said initially, I thought it was just someone had made a mistake. Yeah. Um, once I realised, um, you know, to be honest, when I look back on it, I didn't really feel much at all about it. Um, you know, I, I guess the position that I was in, um, I was in a position of, of command. You don't really have the luxury of, of feeling too much about these sorts of situations when you've got so many other things to think about. Um, so certainly I've thought about it at other times, but how I felt in the moment, I'll, I'll be honest, I really just can't give you an answer. What made you go into the military as an officer? Um, probably my brother. Mm-hmm. Um, I My plan was probably to just go in as an infantry soldier and, and do a few years before, you know, make a decision there. But my brother had joined um, as a airfield defence officer mm-hmm. um, and gone through the Royal Military College. And so I got pushed in that direction a little bit by my recruiter. Um, you know, my my academics were reasonable and, and um, I passed quite well in the, the recruitment tests and things like that. So he, uh, he certainly suggested that uh, it was probably a better direction for me. What were the conversations like when you caught up with your brother over dinner in regards to him being in the Air Force and you being in the Army? Because <laughs> um, I believe that there's some rivalry there. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, there's plenty of rivalry there. I certainly give him a, a lot of stick about spending most of his time in five-star hotels. Um, <laughs> but, look, my, my brother was in for 19 years and he, he wow. deplo- yeah, deployed 11 times, um, including the tsunami um, to Indonesia. So he's he's got a wealth of knowledge. So I don't really have a leg to stand on if I was to tease him. <laughs> fair, fair enough. <laughs> Do, were you in a relationship when you... When you deployed? Uh, I was. I was, yes. Um, with a – she was also an officer. Mm-hmm. Um, so we met at the Royal Military College. We were together uh, for about nine years. We actually ended up getting married. Um, so, But, yes, yeah, so we were in the early stages of our relationship when I deployed over there, which came with a lot of challenges, as you can imagine, um, you know, being away for that long. We did get to see each other halfway through for two weeks. Uh, but that almost made it worse, you know. So coming, seeing each other, and then having to um, go away again, um, especially knowing that the spring offensive was on when I was going back. So you know that's when when the um, they really kick off after winter. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I was in a relationship, and it certainly came with a lot of challenges. It's interesting. I was going to ask um, how they coped, sort of parents and so forth and then which would be a bit different because your brother had already been there before that's right yeah but then being being in a relationship but it but it would have been a very different dynamic with her being in the military as well did she deploy she deployed later on yeah um but yes yeah, so i i think i think being in the military with a military partner was advantageous for me because of that understanding um I think I've got a new partner now. She's um, She's got no military background or anything. And we were actually talking about things like this the other day because obviously she's had to accept that my business is based around veterans. And so she's starting to be around a lot of people like me. Um, mm. And, you know, it. I, I think if I had have deployed at the time with someone who didn't have the understanding that my partner at the time did, I would have had a lot of a lot tougher time. 
I one of uh, my previous interviews, I spoke with a a lady who I actually know called Lorraine, and her husband's ex SAS, right. and she um, used a service. I think she was out by the time um, he deployed. He was one of the first waves that went over, right. and um, she sort of she was explaining and how it was. You know, he got told, okay, he's going to be deployed. And then it was literally, it got moved forward and moved forward. And then suddenly it was like, okay, here's the package for your wheels. Here's everything that you need to do. They mapped everything out and then he was gone. Like mm. it was very, very quick. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, yeah. And she. I mean, that wasn't mm. so much the case for us. Um, mm. You know, we had ours pretty well planned out. So when I got to the unit in 2009, we were told anyone in A Squadron uh, will be deploying next year. So we basically had 12 months to prepare. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So certainly it wasn't thrust upon us the same way that the SAS copped that very early mm. on in the piece, yeah. So how long were you in the Army for, all up? Um, I think in the full time I was in for around about six or seven years. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. But then I've, I did reserve time uh, for a few years after that as well. And I still do the occasional reserve day over at 20 Regiment in, um, mm-hmm. in Brisbane, at Inogra there. Mm-hmm. Um, so overall I think I'm, I'm up around that 10 or 11 years at this stage with on and off service as a reservist. Why did you leave full-time Army? Um, so... I always said to myself that if I was getting up and going to work disgruntled, the only people I was going to take it out on were the soldiers. Um, I think after I hurt myself um, and couldn't go for special forces, I ended up in a position that I really didn't want to end up in. It was a particular job as the ops captain that I didn't want to do. It was based around, you know, risk management and, and things like that and planning. And I really... I didn't handle it well, not being around soldiers. Um, mm. You know, I was stuck in an office and that was my job, go to work, uh, write a risk assessment to do something benign or menial and then uh, go home and I hated it. So I, um, I, as I said, I always have made that decision that if that is how I was going to be, I was only ever going to take it out on soldiers. So that's when I made the decision and I reached out to my old boss to ask him if he had any work going and I took leave without pay initially just to sort of test the waters what it was like on the outside um, but then ultimately made that decision to to change over to the reserves. Do you not have a, and this is obviously I've got no experience in the military, but is there not an, an option for you to be like after a certain period of time, get me out of this role and transfer to a new role? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, you know, at the end of most years, you're, you're moved into a different role. Um, yeah. But, no, when there's a requirement, there's a requirement. And so they had the re- that spot was the requirement. And it's kind of, excuse me, um, when you're doing the, the special forces program, um, they, they make the assumption that you're going to pass, so they fill the positions accordingly. And so when you then don't pass or don't end up going, you've, you just get put into whatever gap they've got left. Gee, that's interesting because it's such a high failure rate to get in. So I'm surprised that they operate that way. But there's also a low, um, a low amount of officers that go for it as well. Mm, okay. Yeah. So look, oh, yeah, it, it's realistically it just came down to um, I, I was put in a position to to fill a gap, and um, you know, it just wasn't who I was as a person that particular job. Fair enough. So you did some contracting work though after you got out. 
That's correct. What's uh, the difference between being, I know one's private and one's obviously for the country, but but what was the main differences between contracting? Why did you go into it? Uh, so the initial contracting I was doing was just in um, workplace health and safety. So I was working for a mining company over in Broome and we were escorting um, their environmentalists and things like that. There was a high level of protester activity out there. So we were providing uh, security and, and workplace health and safety. Um, but the, the type of people you're around as a contractor in those sorts of fields is basically the same people you're around in the Army. So uh, I think that's what attracted me to those roles because I was still comfortable because uh, I was surrounded by you know, the same, same types, I suppose. Mm. Um, but then I moved on to contracting in Abu Dhabi. Um, and, again, it's just it's the same sort of people. So the people is what made the Army so great as far as I was concerned. Um, being around individuals, motivated individuals, disciplined guys, you know, self-motivators. Um, they really sort of, uh, they're the sort of people I try and position myself around. Um, so that's why I stuck in in that field. And so there really is, there's only small differences, I suppose, because the hierarchy in the, the private contracting world are all veterans, um, you know, for the most part. So mm-hmm. it, it feels very similar. So I think being in that industry it was based around comfort when you got out you started up the 214 cafes talk me through the decision to do that and why you went down and branded it very like the colors the same as the regiment colors you very much took it on as a veteran cafe mindset talk me through the reasons for you starting up the cafe okay so it actually happened i was in abu dhabi at the time um, and I've met a girl over there and we've been seeing each other for about 18 months. All these women, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's really not that many. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> it certainly seems that way, though, doesn't it? But there's not, I can assure you. Uh, <laughs> so I met her over there and um, she was an Irish girl. So to get back to Australia with her to get a visa and things like that, we really needed a, um, a strong occupation and a strong reason. Uh, so we actually first purchased Scoozy Cafe, which is um, out in Strathpine in Brisbane, north side of Brisbane. Um, and the idea was that I was going to put her in there um, so that she had a really good job and that gave us a good chance of getting a visa, et cetera. Um, and I was just going to help out initially while I looked for work in Australia. Um, mm-hmm. So I um, I was in there and, and I was washing dishes one day and I had a bit of an epiphany at the time and realised how much I liked it. Um, I figured to myself, what's the worst thing that happens in a cafe? You know, someone gets a bad feed or, you know, might get burnt or something like that is the absolute worst case scenario. And I realised that a lot of the pressure of that career in defence had been lifted. Um mm. And so I, I quite enjoyed it. So I decided to stop looking for other jobs and start concentrating on, on the cafes. And then coincidentally, um, about two months later, there was a cafe that had been um, abandoned um, by a, a previous occupant. And so I rang the centre manager up and said, look, can I just have it? Can I have this location? And he said, yeah, why not? Um, and so we branded it 214 at that stage. Um, and that the reason we did that was um, initially, I guess, it was because we didn't really know what else to do um, up to a point. And then we realised that in the market in Brisbane, there weren't any really uh, big veteran uh, coffee chains. 
And we realised that maybe by having a story to tell, um, we may entice more customers and in the same time, we may um, be able to help a lot of people. So when you're saying helping a lot of people just because the veterans would obviously come in and they'd see other veterans in there and it would be like a bit more of a comfortable hangout, is that what? Yeah, yeah. I, I, yes and no. So we uh, we say that we're, we're trying to help veterans one coffee at a time and, and what it's boiled down to at the end of the day is, um, I'll get into something further in a minute, but effectively making enough money to be able to donate and give back to the community that gave me so much. Uh, you, you know, mental health is obviously such a major issue for veterans and uh, we know that money can help. Uh, mm-hmm. So by creating a story which enticed more customers, uh, we in turn made more money and therefore we were able to donate a lot more. Well, that's good. Mm-hmm. So we, um, you know, we, we took that a step further with our location out in Caxton where we created what we call the Digger's Rest. Uh Um, The Digger's Rest is a location in the cafe which is set up with uh, two chairs and a table. Uh, Your back's to the wall, so there's no way for anyone to approach you from behind. So, you know, anxiety for veterans is is up there and um, I don't know how many you've met, but oftentimes they'll be sitting there looking around and, and assessing their location all the time. So by removing some of those elements, it removes some of that anxiety. So having their back to the wall means no one can come from behind them. Um, Another thing that people think about is money. So when they're sitting in that location, they get to drink um, coffee for free. So effectively, we created a safe space and we don't police it. It's not just for veterans. I mean, the the intent is for veterans, but in reality, it's for anybody who wants to come and sit down who feels like they need a moment to take a breath and uh, they get to sit there um, and just relax, knowing that no one can approach them from behind and that, you know, they don't have to think about money or anything while they're there. That's such a um, lovely and remarkable zone that you set up. Like that's such a lovely sediment behind it. Yeah, I mean, I haven't always been or had the easiest time out in public places myself. Coming back, you know, yeah, you you do get that anxiety at a time. Crowds can be quite difficult for some of these guys. Um, I've been reasonably resilient, but that's not to say that I haven't had my moments. And I know that. Yeah. Um, most of these guys only have moments as well. And sometimes in those moments, just knowing that you've got a place you can go to can make a difference. How many do you have now? You've got Digger's Rest. You had the other one, which was the um, Scoozy. Yeah. And then yep. you've got some. Then you've got three other three other cafes for the yeah, 214? So, so the Cafe 214, Digger's Rest is just part of the Cafe 214 out at Caxton. Okay. Um, um, so we've now got um, a franchise located at Caxton and Morrowfield mm-hmm. um, Shopping Centre. Uh, we've got 214 and Scoozy in Strathpine Shopping Centre. We've got uh, two Cafe 2 locations in Westfield Chermside, mm-hmm. uh, one out at Capalabar Central Shopping Centre, and we've just put in a coffee cart out the front of GoTo Health at Everton Park. And these are all in Queensland for those that are outside Australia or other areas of Australia. Yeah, that's right. That's right. They're all Brisbane. They're all north side of Brisbane except the one in Capalabar, which is um, south side. Are you going to um, go national with them? Um, so we had really big plans until the start of last year, until March hit us and yeah. COVID absolutely obliterated us. Um, you know, we lost ninety-seven, oh, sorry, 87% of our revenue overnight. Yeah. Um, so, and that maintained for for a while. Um, and you guys weren't even in a hard lockdown. 
Uh, up in we, Brisbane? We, we, we did at that stage. So that's when the, oh. the Prime Minister first um, said that cafes and things were going to go. So not so much a full lockdown, but they went to takeaway only, et cetera. Um, and all of our cafes are based in shopping centres. So for the most part, everyone oh. shut down in shopping centres. So we there was really no reason for anyone to be there. Oh, of uh, course. I didn't even consider the fact that you're in a shopping centre would have been even a worse location in that scenario. Yeah, that's right. And and we base our cafes around playgrounds and um, and major retailers. So with the playgrounds closed, we lost all of that traffic. Um, you know, we had gyms. We positioned ourselves close to gyms and things, but all of that shut down, so we lost all of that foot traffic. So, yes, we, we have plans. Um, they are on – we're in consolidation mode now. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll spend the next 12 months now consolidating our position and recovering, uh, making sure the franchisees are making money, uh, making sure the business is is making money, and uh, you know, then we can concentrate on moving further on next year. We are in discussions for um, Sydney, uh, for six locations in Sydney, um, based around a, a master licence holder down there, uh, and he's an X214 guy as well. Um, so there are discussions ongoing, but certainly we've had to slow down due to the pandemic, that's for sure. I noticed that you're also starting up your own coffee company to distribute um, coffee. Yeah, that's right. So 214 Distributions has been around now for around about oh, 18 months, but we've kept it quite quiet because we've been using it as our own internal distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that we're starting to push further out with franchises, we've started wholesaling to other uh other cafes as well. That's good. Mm, Can the general public order coffee directly from you? Absolutely. So they can do it in a number of ways. They can order through Facebook. They can get on our website, which is just Mm -hmm. cafe214.com.au, and that's TWO and the number's 14 for anyone confused. We get that a lot. Um, And they can buy it in store as well. Okay. And so what made you go from cafes to Recruitment, obviously, veteran um, employment is, a, you know, an important uh, topic and and a discussion that needs to be had. And I think is I'm so pleased that you're doing something around it. As an ex recruiter, I um, think it's a really important area to be in. What made you sort of go from being in the cafes and having all this, um, all the with the downturn, and then going into another mugs game, which is recruitment. <laughs> <laughs> And I can uh, say that as an ex-recruiter, it is a mugs game. <laughs> well, look, we um, we are approaching it in a in a different way, and I'll get to that in a second. But beyond what I mentioned earlier about my reasons, as in um, who I'd spoken to, I did see uh, there's a lot of veterans out there that have been struggling to get work, and these are people that can add so much value to a business. You know, these are guys that or girls that you don't need to teach discipline to. You don't need to teach. Um, motivation to you don't need to teach a lot of these things and they've got all of their ability to um, to add value to the business through their trainability I mean they've been taught how to learn you Mm. you know you get taught that in the military so um, these are people that can be put into just a wide variety of roles and somehow they still couldn't get any work Um, I think the perception though out there in the general populace is that someone coming from the military has all they know which is an ignorant position, but all they know is how to fire a weapon and, you know, they they don't really understand 
the big machine that is the military and all the other roles and cogs in there as well. 100%, but even if you take into account an infantry soldier who, um, as you say, the perception is that all they know how to do is is shoot a weapon, to get into the infantry now, there's a high level of education that's required. You know, gone are the days where you just give anyone a weapon. Now to get through the recruitment channels, you've actually got to be genuinely good. Um, So there's... Basically, the the main point of this recruitment company is not so much to um, – oh, it, it's more based around educating employers and mm. getting them beyond the stigma of, of someone from the military. So, you know, every, every soldier's got PTSD. Well, that's not true. It's just not mm. true. But that is certainly the public's perception because there's so much talk about mental health, which is great. It's great that it's out there. It's great that people know that this is a problem. But they also need to understand that um, not everybody does and most of them are, can manage it the same way anybody else can. So it's about educating employers about the, the extra value that a soldier can bring and getting them past the stigma that they all have mental health problems. One of the main concerns that I think, touching on what you've, you've said and coming from an ex-recruitment mindset is that they're going to be saying, do I need to put in any special consideration for somebody that's an ex-vet? What would you say to that? I would say that everybody needs to be treated on a case-by-case basis. I think special circumstances need to be put in place for, uh, let's say, a, a pregnant lady or for, you know, somebody with a learning disability or something like that. You know, everyone's case-by-case. I would say certainly your environment should be set up in a way that um, is inclusive for everybody. Um, And so I I don't believe special treatment is necessary per se, but certainly it it needs to be inclusive for everybody. And soldiers soldiers can come to the party with with varying issues, you know. So in the cafe business, for example, um, I was caught off guard by some of the issues that a teenager brings to the party. Um, so I had to um, adopt or adapt my business to to meet those requirements. So I don't say that it's any different for a, a large business having to adapt to, to bringing on anyone. Well, I think that sums that up perfectly, Michael. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I saw on LinkedIn that you've already started making placements and you've not even formally launched yet. Yeah, that's right. So we we placed two people within a week um, and now we've had employers reaching out because once they realised the quality of the person we put in, we had uh, one of the companies reach out to us and say that they've actually now moved on from the recruitment company they were using and um, plan to use us specifically moving forward just because our pool of candidates is so strong Mm. Uh, and the strength comes from their background. And once they realised what these people, soldiers, can bring to the party, they they went, what have we been doing? Why aren't we doing this more? How are you sourcing the candidates? Does everyone just sort of know that you've started this up and all the military ex-vets coming to you? Like how is it? Well, I can't give away all my secrts. Um, (laughs) No, I I understand that that's (laughs) well protected. (laughs) Word of mouth is a big one. Um, You know, the the military network is quite extensive. Um, yeah. So word of mouth is huge, but also we we were doing running a very soft um, social media campaign at the moment. Yeah. Um, so the the social media campaign has led to most of our signups. 
Um, and we've had a number of employees reach out because of that. And it's interesting, to be honest, I'm actually shocked at how many uh, employees have been reaching out just purely based on word of mouth. Um, so that's mainly how we're doing it at the moment. We do have a particular plan, which I'm not going to divulge. That's uh, fine. I wouldn't expect you to. <laughs> when we launch um, publicly. But mm-hmm. uh, essentially, once an employer understands, then hiring a uh, veteran, it just sells sells themselves. So it, it's, it makes it so easy when I can just say to an employer, well, I've actually got a lieutenant colonel with an MBA. He'd be perfect for this role. You know, it, this is a person who's he's been in a position of power for a lot, really long time with really high qualifications. I don't need to sell that to anybody. You know, mm. then they're falling over each other to try and get hold of these uh, of these candidates. I think there's also a perception that someone from the military is going to not be very flexible in terms of um, their mentality which I think is incorrect. Would you agree with that? Well, certainly you've only got to look at the Army website to, and have a look at some of the buzzwords on there, adaptability, flexibility. These are all things that are trained into a person uh, that goes through the military. So, yeah, certainly I think that's part of what we need to do moving forward is continue to educate employers on, on what they're really getting. I know you're based in, in Queensland, but you're mm-hmm. able to recruit and service nationally or is it just Queensland? No, so we're, we've got candidates that have uh, signed up from all over Australia. Uh, we're working with a mining company in Western Australia at the moment. Um, we've got uh, jobs going in Sydney, uh, Melbourne, mostly Queensland at the moment, but, yeah, definitely mm-hmm. we've got a national reach. That's awesome. Mm. And you're formally launching March now. So I can't. I'd love to sit here and give you a an exact date. We don't give me have an exact one. date, Michael. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we we were hoping for the end of February, but we realised that we had um, a couple of vulnerabilities in our in our process. So I would rather take an extra few weeks and yeah. uh, and get that all right than launch prematurely and and make mistakes. So. Um, it, it will be sometime in March that we launch, probably closer to the middle. You mentioned um, found and went into contracting after the military because you liked the personalities. They were very self-motivated. How have you found working with people, because I'm assuming that you have employees internally that aren't mil- ex-military, how have you mm-hmm. found finding people that are self-motivated outside of that organisation? Um, uh, I'll, I'll be honest. I just haven't had any difficulty finding it. Um, yeah, so one of the partners in the recruiting company is a um, ex-military guy himself. Um, yeah. One of them's a, a creative that does all of our development and things like that, who I've known for 20 years. Um, and the other person involved at the moment is my partner, who's a, a solicitor on the north side of Brisbane. So we've got basically all the bases covered from the four partners in the recruitment company. Um, yeah. And... Yeah, finding employees, well, you'd be silly as a veteran recruiting company to not be recruiting veterans. Veterans, so, yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's it's easy to find self-motivated people through that. Perfect. Mm. Well, Michael, I wish you all the best. I think it's such a wonderful niche that you've gone into and I think it's really important and anything that we can do to help support the guys and girls when they get out of the armed forces is is brilliant. So thank you so much for your time. Yeah, I appreciate that very much. Just before we do leave, we are in the process of 
taking it a step further and, and really creating a transitions program. Um, so we we effectively uh, don't just want to employ people. We want to make sure that they're mentally and physically robust, uh, financially secure, and have a job on the cards as well. So that is something to get excited about because that's going to be coming later this year. So when you say that you're you're mentioning that you're taking it, you're taking some that's come to you for employment and you're saying, I'm not just going to find them employment, I'm going to help them with all these other areas as well? Yeah, that's right. And even if okay. we can get to them before they are looking for employment, you know, and, and get them through through other channels. So um, unfortunately, I can't speak to who I'm working with at, at the moment yeah. on it, but it's to get um, to make sure that they're mental, mentally and physically robust. Uh, yeah. You know, some of these guys might get out of the military and be offered up um, subsidies or um, maybe some some pay from DBA or something like that, uh, and maybe they don't um, have the financial knowledge to know how to spend it properly. So, you know, a financial planner comes into play. Uh, you know, divorce rates in the military are quite high, um, and there's so there's some avenues there. So we'll be providing um, legal advice and things like that. So really just trying to create a one-stop shop for a veteran so they they can stop them bounce around from department to department and uh, having their mental health affected even more and just mm. come to us as a one-stop shop and uh, and really get uh, control of their transition. So you're really eliminating that whole frustration that they feel in terms of getting the runaround? Certainly that's a plan. Hopefully we don't become the frustration, but, yes, certainly <laughs> certainly with the right steps put in place and, and the plan that we're creating, yes, yeah, certainly we, we want to become that for them. And they can find when that is up and running. They can find that on your two fourteen recruitment website. Certainly, and I will get in touch with you specifically to let you know when it's uh, ready to launch. Perfect. Okay, terrific. I'll include them in the show notes as well. Great. Thanks, Michael. Thank you very much. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 